Chicago transport was smooth, so wonderfully civilized. Put on headphones with techno. I had my hour and a half ride to the hotel. It was beautiful. Hey, Slavic Connection listeners, we still have more episodes for you of us recording live from AC's 2022. This episode was with Anastasia Asipova. She's a scholar of Soviet and contemporary Russian and Ukrainian cultures with a focus on materialist aesthetics, and she is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. She was very generous to come and chat with us about doxa. That doesn't sound familiar to you. Don't worry. It didn't sound familiar to me either. And that's what this episode is for. So take a listen and enjoy. getting comfortable with the microphone. <laughs> so I was just going to start, you know, just from the very beginning. I'd love to talk about your work, but before we get into that, let's start with just an introduction to you, what you work on, and what kind of led you to be active in this field. Great. Well, my name is Nastasia Osipova, and I work as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, the Department of Germanics and Slavic Languages and Literatures. And um, my general, very broad field of specialty interest is 20th and 21st century Soviet and Russian and Ukrainian contemporary writing and prose. And within that uh, very narrow field, I have a slightly narrow subfield of being interested in materialist aesthetics um, and let's say productivism, right? right? Or sort of long history of productivist aesthetics. Um, and of course, Russian formalism is part of this conversation. Um, so that's kind of my broader interest. And right now I'm working on a book. It's in a development stages, but already a start. Yeah. And the book is, um, it explores several intergenerational moments of people reading prison literature, prison memoirs, um, and that reading encounter and pedagogical encounter to some extent mobilizing them politically and unfortunately in the kind of Soviet context and even contemporary Russian context, uh, certain reading patterns are very likely to bring you to certain places. So it's not very uncommon for people who research or who at some point get interested in the history of political uprisings to wind up behind the, the kind of the gates. Um, so in other words, I wanted to take a look at prison writings, historical politics. So not to think of it in terms of kind of histories of personal suffering, so sacrifices, or kind of this whole melodrama, although of course that's part of it, but to think of it as a kind of long durational fact uh, of writing under specific um, material conditions, and also reading writing that is productive productive of certain subjectivities, uh, patterns, and in this instructive in terms of kind of practical skills of survival. So that's a kind of broad <laughs> scope. And I'm mostly focused on the sort of 1920s to 1960s transition, but um, everything is written with an eye to contemporary crisis. So uh, you said you're still working on it, um, but I'm just curious, like, what have you been finding so far in looking into something like so very specific, very specific timeline and very specific framework of how you're looking at this? Oh, my God. Yes, the timeline is, is very, very long. And I'll just kind of start, not that it will come into my research, but I'll start with an anecdote. 
So several years ago, I was sitting at a reading room at New York Public Library, and I was leafing through a journal that is called Katarga and Isilka. It's a great title. It means exile and hard labor. And it is a journal that was published from 1924 until everything decisively was shut down in, um, I think, in 1935 or 33. I'm sorry for getting my... But basically, things were kind of wound out before that. But for a good decade, that was a very kind of strong journal that was all published by by former political prisoners. It was a kind of magazine run by a society of former political prisoners who went into kind of Siberia or behind the gates uh, under czarism and who came out. And in the 1920s, they banded together and they said, look, okay, we need to have this organization for not only for sort of practical support, but also for promotion of leftist uh, groups who were not Bolsheviks, but who were kind of participants in the revolution and used this moment of having massive writing workshops memoir writing workshops, a collection of ethnographic data about experience of imprisonment as a way for forging political mobilization and kind of advocating for the role that other leftists, socialist revolutionaries, anarchists had a very big kind of presence in this journal played in kind of the revolutionary event. So when I was looking at their journals, I was surprised at their size. Issues run from like 250 to 300 pages. There were four issues a year. There were thousands of people involved in it. And I had this kind of small, petty New York style epiphany. I was like, oh my God, imagine looking at, I don't know what, N plus one or whatever kind of literary review everybody's, all your friends are publishing in around you and realizing that for essentially generations of generation of primarily young and then aging people, uh, prison was not just a matter of kind of exceptional experience, but also a constant historical and cultural backdrop that either touched them directly or somebody they knew directly. And if it didn't, it still remained a kind of presence of horizon of imagination, horizon of possibility. And then, of course, as I was reading it, I felt that about the same things will start happening in our lives now, and they are. And once we get to Doxa, Doxa is kind of one of the examples of, again, the sort of situation where uh, entire generation of students begin to feel that prison is something that they need to think about very, very directly um, and in no ambiguous terms. But anyway, so that was that was the start, um, and uh, and from then I. Well, I, know, I started noticing some things that, for instance, one of the editors of Katarga and Silka was also a very prominent constructivist theoretician, I mean, theoretician of the literature fact, uh, kind of constructivist, productivist outline, and who also was one of Varlam Shalamov's kind of, let's say, mentors in the 1920s, training Shalamov how to write documentary literature. That's before Shalamov went to camps. And kind of the story kept unfolding from there. But essentially, I think I just wanted to, my start point was the very obvious realization that basically since the mid-19th century, prison was something that um, youth, first in the Russian Empire, then in the Soviet Union, and now kind of in contemporary Russia um, has, to, has to think of in very direct terms. It's a constant cultural presence. Because it's reality. It's something that, like, at least like from an American perspective, it's something that happens to somebody else. And to them, this is something that can happen to them. That's, it's personal. Yeah, precisely. And I think in the stories of readings, that, that the overcoming of this distance is a kind of recurring motive, right? You start because, well, you like a certain, I don't know, political romanticism or something and it seems like a very exciting fairy tale and but then for so many people it becomes daily non-romantic reality. 
Well, that dovetails nicely into Doxa. And how did you find out about Doxa? What got you interested in pursuing that sort of more very modern, happening right now case study? Right. Um, so I kind of biographically, I was I have a soft spot for uh, for independent media and for student media, and that's why I have big respect for you guys. And uh, yeah, um, I have sort of some semi DIY media outlets of my own. But that aside, um, I don't remember when I first learned about Doxa. Uh, actually, maybe when they first came under fire in 2019, uh, when um, so Doxa started as a student-run magazine. Um, in Moscow, and it was pretty small in scale, and they were interested in investigating kind of general harassment that takes place in the university, sexual harassment, political harassment, um, and they were kind of interesting, but but pretty local. Um, but then in 2019, um, the university out of which the, the journal was coming out decided to uh, stop recognizing DOXA as a student organization um, because they started kind of covering political harassment that students began to experience when they kind of began joining mass protests, right? And this is a kind of important historical wrinkle that I think in 2017, when um, kind of massive protests that were nominally in support for Navalny, but really were just a kind of grab bag of motivations of discontent, um, we started seeing a lot of very, very young faces there. Um, I think in 2017, there was some record number of high school students arrested at protests. Once DOXA began to cover that, uh, university got cold feet, expelled DOXA out of rosters of student uh, organizations, but that also gave them national kind of visibility and there was a national outreach and they kind of took off and became this really kind of grassroots national student media organization and a bit of a voice with their generation. So maybe that's when I kind of started paying attention to them first, but then again, once the arrest happened, they kind of were on my mind. And I also met Natasha Tashkevich before uh, actually, I think at the ACES conference many years ago, um, not that many, but a few. And, uh, and I think I was just sort of hum- shocked on a very human level that uh, about the things that, that were happening to her last year. Well, like, let's get into the research process, because uh, you were very generous to send us a link to uh, one of the interviews that you ran with Natalia. And you preface it by saying that this was done through an intermediary because she's on house arrest. And that's just already a very different research process than I think a lot of us are used to going through of just talking to someone who is actively going to trials and is under Russian law. Um, What was that like? Well, um, yes, I'll get into it in a second. But once DOXA members were arrested, well, their offices were raided in April of 2021, and the riot cops confiscated technology, computers, trashed the office, and put uh, the four people who were at the offices then and who they identified as DOXA editors, they're Natasha Tashkevich, Valodimir Tolkien, Ala Gutnikova, and Armen Ramen, under, well, technically we can describe it as house arrest, only it wasn't that. Um, they were forbidden from leaving the house for 22 hours a day. So basically they could only take walks in the morning. I, I, I'm forgetting the exact hours. So it was either between eight and 10 in the morning. And that was an upgrade because the original conditions was a minute of freedom between 11, 59, um, PM and, uh, and midnight. Um, what a privilege. Yes. So, uh, eventually the, the police, um, yes, decided to become more generous and granted them two hours for all of their, Social and human needs. Um, and, uh, but, but in addition to, to the prohibition of movement, they also faced a so-called prohibition of certain actions, which included 
the prohibition from using the communication network called internet. Um, so technically they were not allowed to use computers, um, yet during the year that they spent under this, let's say, pretty much house arrest, um, they've worked out some, some roundabout methods, one of which was, uh, let's say, talking to an intermediary. If you guys go on YouTube, there's an interesting early uh, interview with Slavoj Žižek and Ar- Armen, where I think Armen is in the room together with a friend of his, friends could visit, and the friend has a computer, and so she's talking to Žižek and relaying questions to Armen. Um, in my case, it was a little bit different, but basically I just had to talk to friends through friends, and we've arranged this conversation. Uh, but also Docs at the time wanted somebody to write about them because I took those interviews right on the eve of the sentencing. And uh, and so they, they were interested in kind of media publicity and I was all too happy to offer it. I think one of the interesting details about this, you know, quotation marks, house arrest, is that they were sent to their parents' house yes. as a sort of discipline of, you know, you stepped out of line, so let's have your parents like put some sense into you, which is a very interesting concept that doesn't happen here mm-hmm. usually. <laughs> yeah, well, that was their kind of, I think technically they were sent to the addresses where they were prapisane, um, mm. they kind of registered, but I think in their subjective experience, it was like being sent to mom and dad. Uh, but in general, I think that there is something to that uh, kind of disciplinary function. Um, and my my sense is that, and one of the reasons why I find the case of dogs so very interesting, one of many reasons, is that I think they were at the moment when the, the four doxa editors were arrested. And I should say that they stopped being doxa editors once the court case started and doxa continues and grows. And there are many, many, many more people involved in it than the kind of the doxa four. <laughs> uh, let's call them this way. But when they were arrested, they were clearly intended to be scapegoated, right? So to some extent, we, in that case, we see the clashing of, let's say, student media that is trying to tell the story of what it's like to be a student, but also to shape a story of what it's like to be a politically engaged student, right? There's a kind of instant reflection, creation of the audience and mirroring of the audience going on in real life. And then the kind of the media of the court, right? And so we sort of had, in this case, we have this competition where um, the court has its own pedagogical mission, right? It wants to stage a show trial. And as we know from all the literature and show trials, and I can kind of reference Julie Cassidy's famous book on the show trials, um, show trials always have a pedagogical function, right? They, they, they're meant to be broadcast publicly throughout mass media and in order to tell the audience of kind of what to fear or how to behave. And so in this case, we have a kind of confrontation between a student media that was born specifically out of desire to investigate cases of harassment in pedagogical institutions and in the institutions of higher learning. And uh, kind of initiative then in its own is a form of a, let's say, something that advocates for pedagogical reform and it's a counter-institutional initiative. Um, and they, in turn, the editors get accused of a very Socratic crime of corrupting the youth. The reason for why the officers get raided is because the editors record a three-minute video, I think, uh, explaining to people how to remain safe during the public protests. And the video eventually is taken down and it hasn't been in circulation ever since. But this is kind of why they get arrested, right? They get arrested for corrupting the youth. And essentially, so we have this kind of battle for pedagogical authority 
um, yeah, and that's why I find them very interesting. So I think to return back to your question, the sending back home to mom is in some way might be a part of this logic, right? This very logic. And I'll add one more thing. Paradoxically enough, maybe this is a kind of beneficial externality, beneficial because the case is, uh, well, let's hope it's over. Um, at least all of the four docs editors are now out of Russia. So hopefully they won't return. But so because they were accused of, as I keep saying, corrupting the youth, their case files became, thanks to the investigators, a veritable encyclopedia of the repressions that Russian Federation is carrying against minors and students. So essentially what the persecutors did is that they went and they gathered every single, almost every single file of minors, so high school students who were arrested all across Russia for protesting the regime. And they've put in those files into the cases of doxa's evidence against them. So as the result, their files in their own are, I think, consist of 212 volumes of case files. Yes, those 212 volumes, and uh, a lot of those are documents that essentially testify to the degree to which teenagers, high school students, first-year students of college, second year, are extremely discontent and ready to revolt. I mean, the flip side of that I, I wanted to ask is the kind of crux of your paper is in dealing with their strategies of how they dealt with confinement and police aggression. Uh, one particular example I remember is for their trials because they realized that whatever they said, there wasn't much purpose to what they were going to say. So instead they took requests mm -hmm. from people who read their articles and they would insert words into like their pre-prepared speeches. Yeah, that was, that was a great a kind of a beautiful practice where they had a, um, a ruffle where people could pay, uh, well, but and by paying donate to Docs a fund, and then those funds were used to also kind of for prison support. And okay, so the, the money was used for good purposes. But so people could pay to have their chosen words be featured in the uh, in the statements that will be read in court. That was not the final statements. And of course, kind of people paid for funny words like I don't know beekeeping or kind of names of funny animals. And then all of all of this sort of word soup and word collage was then. Um, entered into, into the speeches thread on court. That was a big success. Yeah, but thank you for the question. So that was one of many strategies. Um, and if, if I can, I'll just kind of present the framework again for why the specific case, um, especially now when there are so many more arrests and the situation is much worse. But I think that the case of Doxa in some ways is a kind of, is a good, well, watershed moment for a completion of a certain phase that started in 2012 with the disappointment of Balutne Square uh, protests and, and then of course the era of actionism that followed with Pussy Riot and Pavlensky and then eventually third wave of actionists, which are very much after my heart. Katrin Nashova uh, is one of them. So we kind of have this different kind of phases of public political performance uh, by young people performance that usually ends in court, and sometimes very deliberately so. And with Doxa, we have people who grew up with those images. So Natasha Tushkevich says that she remembers going to Pussy Riot uh, trials and watching them as an audience. Uh, Alla Gutnikova uh, writes about kind of seeing all those images of 
about Navras and Pussy Riot and so on uh, in one of her poems um, that I analyze in my paper. And uh, uh, so one way or another, they kind of, in Doxa, they reflect on what it felt like to grow up with this kind of, on the one hand, constant recurring images of sort of heroic protesters trying very dramatic poses, eventually wind up in court and kind of starting media campaigns. And um, so they're both very, dogs are very familiar with it, but also they're reflecting quite critically on the sort of stance of a very sort of dramatic revolutionary protagonist. Um, so anyway, so here's this kind of generational continuity. As I've said, I think Doxa case was meant to be a show trial that was intended to send the message to their audience. But on the other hand, it also ended in April 2022 just a few months after February 2022, and a time that really sent all of us into a very different period with a very different logic. Um, and unfortunately, in from today's perspective, the story of Doxa doesn't even feel that dramatic, right? So in other words, I'm not kind of my conversation is less about the sort of personal outrage, although of course there is every reason for it, uh, and if anything there is more, but um, kind of I'm interested in Doxa as both a kind of the end of a certain period of a decade from 2012 to 2022, and hopefully a beginning of something that what what it will look like, I don't know, but I can try to kind of divinate based on, on the story. I mean, that was, that was going to be my next question. What do you think? Where do we go from here with the way they protest and the way they push back on, on what's been happening? Like, how does it evolve from here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the main tendencies that I've noticed in the actions of, I mostly look at Natasha's actions and, and Alla because they were most um, kind of media open during the year of their confinement. So they would post almost daily uh, images on social media. Instagram was one of their kind of outlets. Um, Alla is also a poet. Um, and then, and then of course they would use, as you mentioned, uh, kind of the theatrics of court or space outside of court also for, to some extent, unhinging or decentering the kind of the court event <laughs> itself. I mean, um, yeah, if they're being forced to put on a show, why don't they put on a show right back? Precisely, precisely. And it did all of that in very interesting ways. And I think what was kind of particular about them is that while they all kind of expressed their respects to Pussy Riot and also Alyokhina and Lüsestein were uh, in court almost at the same time and also had to wear kind of ankle bracelets. So there was this kind of camaraderie uh, of people who were brought together by almost the same technological means of having to deal with the same technology kind of attached to their bodies. At the same time, um, kind of the dogs of four wanted to very consciously distance themselves from this kind of tradition of heroic martyrdom or stance of heroic martyrdom that they felt characterized both the first and second waves of actionism in Russia, but also was to some extent a feature of the Soviet dissidents, right? Um, a kind of, again, either sense of moral indignation and, and, and meaningful suffering or a sense of kind of indignation about the court, right, uh, and its injustices. And I felt that uh, kind of the dogs of four were coming to the court on the one hand with a much more ironic attitude. There was nothing had to be revealed to them about the extent of how punitive <laughs> Russian court system is. So there were no surprises there. They, they were not on the mission of, let's say, seducing the West into showing how horrible things are in Russia. Again, all of that is pretty well known. Um, but And they didn't want to take a part in this dissident melancholia either. So I think with them, 
as Natasha was talking, um, she said that she herself is very interested in, on the one hand, say contemporary iteration of cyber feminism and the thinking about internet that was authored by the more anarchist kind of media theoreticians in the 90s and now, and thinking of the way to basically make yourself a technical object in a network, right? So from that, it comes to some extent, maybe her initial media optimism about a kind of a desire to model this sort of attitude of non-melancholic approach to confinement, a sense of humor, a sense of vulnerability as well, but broadcasted not from a position of like one's own exceptionality or celebrity, but as a sort of networked emotion, right? Like this is what everyone in her environment is feeling or could be feeling. And of course, by the end of their trial, um, war has already started. Uh, Russian repressions on the internet were very much along the way. Everyone was fearing kind of that the Great Firewall might be coming up and that internet would also sort of crumble or turn into something much more rudimentary. And I asked her about that and she said, well, maybe we can think about a kind of a much more internet logic and a much more even restricted and primitive uh, media environment where we can still think about networks and ways of creating kind of empowering networks with whatever media environments or kind of objects or technological objects around, right? But I feel like the emphasis for her shifted into necessity of thinking in terms of networks, institutions, making you recognizing yourself as part of the network first and foremost, um, and having kind of you using whatever technological objects or everyday objects you have in order to extract whatever emancipatory potential you can out of them or tactical potential. With Allah, the situation is particularly kind of peculiar, poignant, because while I feel and argue that I think Allah also kind of shares this very network technological logic to staging her presence as a political, at that point, prisoner, now activist. Uh, at the same time, she is a model um, who photographs a lot. She's an actress and she's very sort of self-conscious about her modeling and acting. I think she said that during the, the time of that she was under house arrest, she had about 30 or 40 photo shoots. Um, and of course, she kind of photographs herself. And yet, despite that, I feel that um, kind of her self-styling and her functioning as a model is in some extent closer to sort of Brecht's idea of justic theater, right? Uh, uh, so rather than a kind of sincere, dramatic, melodramatic acting, right? So it's not a theater of a singular celebrity. It's in some ways an interesting kind of performance of somebody who is very well versed in the kind of gestures of others. In one of her poems, she kind of ironically comments about Nadia Talakno's no pasaran gesture as, and she, you know, in, in, her, in the, in, in the tag, in the poetic text, Allah says like, okay, once again, lifted fist, uh, kind of clan jaw, like we're seeing that once again. And yet she herself reproduces this gesture in court and she asks for a while that it's, the, it is this photo that gets circulated with press releases. So I think. In that case, she oftentimes reenacts gestures as citations, right? Mm. So it becomes this kind of interesting balance of both being an actress who is very present in her kind of vulnerability, also sexuality, um, kind of embodied presence on stage. And yet she is also somebody who tries to, again, use her modeling presence as a kind of technology for citing. So words and gestures that were performed by other people. 
And in fact, in her kind of court statements, uh, statement, final court statement, um, I think she says like, look, I want to speak through the, through the voices of others, with the voices of others. And her own court statement also draws on a lot of citations, which, uh, she describes as her own kind of alternative school. She says, look, uh, the court tried to put me in the school of suffering and humility, but I also am enrolled in this other school to which poets, anarchist thinkers, uh, philosophers belong. And to some extent, I think, so she models her being as this kind of embodied student of other voices and gestures that she at the same time kind of montages, collages in her kind of physical performances and in her poetry and her stages. So once again, it's, it's a little bit different than maybe the kind of the glossy photo shoots in Vogue that, uh, Maria Lyuchina and Nadezhda Talakonikova did after their release. I feel that it's a, again, even that is done a bit with a kind of technological thought in mind. I mean, that's fascinating that there's so much to like it right it's not just protesting there's so many pieces to this and it's it's not just a simple you know rejection of this narrative that they were given it's carrying through what's already been done but in in this new way because it is a younger generation and they're bringing in their own experiences and and knowledge and i just don't see someone in their 30s or 40s doing what they're doing and how they're doing it mm-hmm. so would you say that like is kind of how it's going to carry at least with this younger generation like not probably won't be picked up by older Russian people like yeah I don't know but I find the docs of four profoundly impressive um, you know, Ala just turned 23 and uh, they're all I, I mean Natasha is just a few years older but they're all in their mid to late 20s at most and it's very very remarkable um, at the same time what the future brings I I don't know and I as much as I try to predict I, I have no way of telling it um, and this is maybe kind of a stumbling block and hopefully uh, may, maybe something will come up again the situation changing so fast but well um, to some extent and right now, from the vantage point of this month and year, dogs of war seem to be fortunate because they they got out of Russia in time. They, to some extent, were woken up to the, the catastrophe that really broke out in February early on. They had no illusions. And uh, to some extent, maybe they were more psychologically prepared to this, what's happening now, which is a complete undoing of pedagogical institutions, terror on students, um, and also demoralization of student movement to some extent. I mean, it exists even in Russia, despite very, very real um, uh, dangers that it poses. But unfortunately, the proportion of the repression to the possibility of articulating actions in the absence of kind of coherent political movements and opposition is very uneven, right? So, well, okay, you can at a cost of a lot of sacrifice, carefulness and conspiracy, you can organize a student movement that will, okay, put stickers saying no to war in toilets, but well, what does that do? And to some extent, I feel that the the, the people affiliated with dogs are kind of past that by now. Um, they kind of had their wake up calls. Um, and I hope that this kind of effort of building social and economic networks of support, prison support, um, refugee support, immigration support, whatever, that again, this kind of thinking of creation of alternative institutions, um, that that will continue despite the kind of the shocks and the stresses of people facing war, having had to run, immigrate, etc. Yeah, so we'll see what happens. (music) 
capacities. Is DOXA still going? Oh, yeah. Yes, they're going very strong. Um, and again, it's very important to d- differentiate DOXA the journal and DOXA the case of DOXA. So the journal is going very, very strong. And in fact, um, they were one of the very, very few publications um, that survived after the kind of big media crackdown um, after the, be- the beginning of war. And of course, they did it uh, through kind of technological prowess. They managed to sort of move the information in the proper way. They've set up daily newsletters as a way of kind of circulating information to people. And they also are on Telegram and on Instagram. And I think recently they were even able to restart their website. Of course, the kind of it's not hosted in in Russia and it's, it remains a horizontal organization with lots of lots of volunteers. And um, since February 24, most of their coverage has been dedicated to war. And so especially in the first um, kind of month or two of war, um, they were one of the, I wouldn't say only, but one of the main and consistent outlets for, for news about war in Ukraine. Are they at risk of being shut down because, you know, anything that is remotely anti-war is put at risk of, of just being eliminated? So I mean, all of that has been eliminated very, very quickly at the beginning. So, yes, yeah, so most media outlets who continue publishing about war in Russian language are not in Russia anymore. <laughs> That was a very thorough explanation of of this case study, and it's absolutely fascinating and at least a relief to know that the docs of four are now out of prison and at least, you know, have moved on to the next part of their lives. Yes, they were technically sentenced, but they were sentenced, basically, they were allowed to spend their sentence outside of prison. And the reason why I'm stuttering a little bit is because the conditions of that were not really clear to them themselves at the time. Uh, and the way the sort of sentence was worded, but they decided not to wait for it. And so they ran. Um, so now all of them are outside of Russia and Russia is technically searching for them. There is a warrant out for the arrest, but hopefully there won't be a need for it to be ever used. <laughs> <laughs> Are you staying in touch with them? More or less, yes. Yes, I should. I should. Once I once I finally finish this draft, I want to turn it into an article, and I'll send it to them for comments. Send yeah. it to us too. We'd love to read it. So moving on from that, ask about any future research. Like once you finish that article, what's next for you? Right. Well, this will, yeah, hopefully be a standalone article. And after that, I'll return to thinking about all the same dynamics, but uh, as it played out in the 1920s and 30s and then going on to 60s. So essentially the, the... uh, the questions will be very similar. How do you build a network? How do you make sure that it is remains political as as far as far as maintaining kind of possibility for political mobilization, not just reporting, and also thinking about uh, youth and youth counter initiatives, um, and essentially resisting the uh, oppressive pedagogy of courts and uh, repressive institutions with providing consistent counter educational initiatives. I'd also be remiss in not asking you about Cicada Press. If you wanted like a moment to explain what it is and promote it. Wow, thank you for for, for researching that. Um, Yes, uh, Cicada is also born out of a kind of anarchist DIY spirit. Um, It's a small press that I run. It was co-founded by me and a poet and anthropologist Matthew Whitley in 2013, shortly after the Occupy Wall Street. Um, It was a kind of can-do moment and we thought that, well, we should just register press and have it serve, again, the kind of networking 
purposes for our friends and eventually sort of grew into primarily vehicle for translation of um, leftist, politically engaged or kind of broadly politically engaged on the left <laughs> uh, with some vestiges of leftist sensibilities, um, prose and poetry that is written in Russian or Ukrainian and coming from Eastern Europe. So the book that we released last year, um, it is a book by Leonid Schwab called The uh, Ever-Burning Pilot. Leonid Schwab is, I guess, interesting, particularly now when we're thinking about Russophone poetry as decentered phenomenon, because he for many, many years has been living in Israel um, and writes again from a position of emptiness or desert. Or um, So this is, I think, an interesting alternative or an interesting way to begin thinking about literature in Russian as decentered and deterritorialized. Um, and in the next future, we have some interesting books lined up, uh, some dealing with poetry that reflects on the war directly or indirectly. Um, so book by... Uh, an environmentally minded poet, Gleb Simonov, uh, who also has been living outside of Russia for, for decades, will become coming next. Um, and I, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, unfortunately, Cicada is a kind of boutique operation. There is a need for it, but there's, uh, it's mostly run by volunteers, main volunteer being myself. Uh, so things are happening quite slowly. Um, and I also have a book to write, but, uh, but this year we will be joined by Ansley Morse, who is a real powerhouse of, uh, translation editorial efforts. We've collaborated with Ansley a lot in the past. In fact, our book by Lida Yusupova has been edited by Ansley, but now with her on board, I think things will start moving very, very quickly. <laughs> That's wonderful. It does feel sometimes like there's so much to do and nothing is moving forward. So yes. at least you have that one going going ahead. That's very exciting. We'll definitely promote that on our episode as well and be sure to name drop that link for you. Thank you so much. Um, but yeah, that's all I had. Thank you very Great. much. Great. Thank you, Lira. Thank you for having me. Спасибо большое. Спасибо вам. The Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network. The conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces. 